the Amiga finally gets a Mini. More about this and other stories on This Week in Retro. High resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. Mario Kart controversy. The A500 Mini. I know Kung Fu. Super Delivery Boy. A mighty playable Amiga platformer. All this in our community question of the week on This Week in Retro. Up-to-date news for out-of-date tech. Now, John, before we go into our first story, I just want to show you something that I've got on the table here. Um, it's to do with the Mr. Multi system, but don't worry, I'm not going to go into full salesman mode. I've got my hand on this thing here. Um, I'm sorry if you're watching on audio. This is really only something you can see on the video version of the podcast. It's just a case, but if I remove my hand, hopefully this could be a massive anticlimax if it doesn't work. Yeah, you can see my fingerprints on the case just... And that's because, do you remember those old global hypercolor t-shirts that would change color yes. as you get hot and sweaty? Very well, this cool. is a color change in PLA on a 3D printer. It does go several different colors, but my hand's not hot enough to do that. But I just thought it was pretty cool that you could have global hypercolor 3D prints now. Um, yeah, yeah. Now, I know that you are planning on doing that for a small number of uh, units to test the heat dissipation, but you planned on offering those colored cases, those hypercolor cases to the general public? If people want it, why not? But okay. yeah, the, the main FPGA chip's in the middle, so it's a really nice way to see that heat up. And then I've got a, a switch I've added to the side for the fan, so when you turn that on, you'll see the, the heat dissipate. Anyway, I just mm. thought it was cool that color changing global hypercolor PLA exists. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> now, let's kick off the show then with some uh, controversy this week, John. Ooh. An epic display of skill and a question of sporting behavior. The game in question is Mario Kart 64 on the N64, a game I think both of us have got lots of experience with. Um, not to the, uh, the world-beating speedrunning uh, level, but we both enjoy the game. And... Um, the competition to be the very fastest has been raging for years and the ultimate accolade for anyone to hold on it is to have the fastest lap time not just on a particular track but on all 32 tracks of the game without using shortcuts. Now, not content with being the fastest on a single tr track, they've been duking this out um, across the entire game for the best part of a decade now. Wow. Now... I, I, you'd think that aiming for such a goal would it would require intense training, of course, hundreds of hours, hundreds of thousands of hours, no doubt, put into this game. Um, yeah, fierce competition. You want some really good competitors to keep you on your toes and push you to that limit. You'd want rigid umpireship to make sure everyone is keeping to the rules. And uh, you would really want some good camaraderie along the way because there will be some long, dark nights grinding away trying to beat those scores, um, as anyone who's tried to speedrun will know. But digging deeper into the story, we do seem to be missing some important elements, depending on uh, who you speak to. Um, elements in the world of, um, let's say, sportsmanship. Now, before we go into that, Mario Kart 64... I said we both played it, and I think we're in agreement that it's a classic, John. What are your thoughts on it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a stone-cold classic, Neil. Um, as we all know, the Nintendo 64 
though a technical showcase for 3D platforming with Mario 64, uh, it wasn't exactly a powerhouse when it came to detailed textures or, or third-party releases, but it might be the console that will go down in history as the best for couch co-op. Uh, putting those four controller ports right on the front was an absolute stroke of genius. I, I, don't at me, Atari fans. I know the Atari 800 had it first, but uh, you know, the, in, in the modern, the more modern era, in the console era, uh, it was it was the first that did that. And getting a group of friends together to play in split screen mode was just nonstop fun. Um, it's rare that a sequel surpasses the original by this large of a margin, but uh, Mario Kart 64. I, in my opinion, beat the original Super Nintendo release uh, itself a classic in its own right pretty handily, I think. Yeah, so uh, it's one thing saying you can get a multi-tap or you can get a cartridge like Micro Machines with four control ports on, but nothing screams this is the perfect co-op um, or, or the perfect console more than actually having those ports as standard in the first place, which is what the N64 mm -hmm. did so well. And there was this phase in the 90s where we saw quite a few games try to copy Mario Kart and the formula. In fact, they still do to this day. They try to, but they could never quite touch it with the exception perhaps on the N64 of Diddy Kong Racing. That was a good one. But I'm thinking of games like Wacky Wheels and um, Street Racer. Do you remember that yeah, one? Yeah, let's not forget that immortal Amiga classic, Bump and Burn. <laughs> oh, yes, Bump and Burn. I was trying to think of that one. Um, did that involve cavemen? Was that that one? Or there was another one? I think you... there was a caveman uh, yeah. racer, but it was it was by and large just the, you know, the, the biggest Mario Kart ripoff you could possibly imagine, just with this small addition uh, of all the fun removed. I think I think BC Racers I'm thinking of. That was another mm. one. I don't know if you remember that one. I but, don't remember um, that one. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, Mario Kart has always had a certain magic in the mechanics of the game itself. Um, so it comes as no surprise that there's this com competitive community that's grown around it. Now, first, let's talk about the achievement. Player Dan Burbank from USA, good American name there, has taken the crown of 32 out of 32 of the fastest track times. The first time anyone has ever done this since the game was released 25 years ago. The competition, at least the main competition, because there were a lot of really great players out there, for the last eight years came in the form of a German player by the name of Matthias Rustemeyer. Mm. I'm sorry if I've uh, pronounced that wrongly, Matthias. Uh, way back, he achieved 26 out of 32 of the records, and, and he did that within two years of hitting the scene. So um, he was really great from the off. Yeah, he was on fire. He was on fire. Buoyed by this success, Matthias expressed his intention to hit all 32 records, and he would openly share his progress with the community. But some, it seems, took exception to this, and they formed an alliance to concentrate their efforts on blocking him from succeeding. At his peak, Mateus hit 31 out of 32 records. He came that close. And over a five-year period, he reached 31 records out of the 32, no less than eight times. He was so, so close. And he came within milliseconds of nailing that last track, but he just couldn't do it. He mm. would always share his records as they happened, only to see the efforts that he'd made broken uh, within sometimes a few days, sometimes a few hours, people seeing that's where his focus was, and then, then they'd hit that track and try and win that record back, and often they would. Now, I'd argue that, that that's perfectly fair competition. When you're that good, when you're the number one at something, of course, everyone has you in their sights. They want to take you down, um, and it makes actually achieving that all the more rewarding when you do do it. But um, not everyone 
shared that sporting behaviour, and Dan Burbank, it appears, was one of them. Breaking away from the alliance that he was part of to uh, stop Mateus from achieving all of the records, um, Dan set about achieving record times of his own and then not sharing them to the community. Instead, what he did was he hoarded all of these records and then he dropped them all at once onto the community, meaning that people just couldn't respond. They didn't know that he'd just broken the record and they couldn't fight back in the same way that they did to Mateus. Now, did he drop all 32 of those records all at one time? No, it wasn't quite to that extreme. Um, As far as I can tell, what he did in July 2020, this happened. He released 10 records all all at the same time. So you imagine you're on 31 out of 32 records. You're just trying to shave off a hundredth of a second off of a time. And then all of a sudden, 10 of your records are wiped out. Imagine how disheartening that would be when you're that close. Um, This unloading was known as the the um the unhoard i think it was so he un- he'd hoarded <laughs> all of these records and he unloaded them onto the community and a backlash quickly forced an apology from dan for his behavior he went so far on reddit as saying what i did while it was not technically cheating it was wrong but um he built on this he built on this this start of 10 records which he dumped and the problem was that he'd hidden these records for over a year and not posted them in the way that Mateus had. So he just wasn't given a fair chance for people to respond to them. Dan, clearly a very skilled player in his own right, built on this until he achieved all 32 records. But it did leave the whole thing feeling a bit tainted by his approach. John, if esports are going to take over the world, surely we need esporting behaviour to go with it. What's your take? You know, there's a very uh, English concept that I read about in early 20th century novels about the escapades of uh, public school boys. Don't judge my reading habits, Neil. (laughs) Um, It's all about fair play. These boys are talking about fair play 24-7. I I think that the win-at-all-costs mentality of of current sports has bled over into the eSports arena. And uh, what I would like to see is an eSports league that has some class. Uh, I'm talking Crested Blazers, tea at 3.30 p.m. sharp, and big side matches every Saturday (laughs) afternoon. You dress your competitors, Neil, like Harrow Boys, and boom, they'll shape right up. (laughs) I'd love to see a competitive eSports event take a break for afternoon tea. You know, three (laughs) tiers of... You know, scones and crumpets and, mm-hmm. and cakes. That would be that'd be a beautiful sight. Um, but it is monkey see, monkey do, isn't it? You, you know, there's so much money involved in the top sports these days that it is win at all costs. And that filters down Where, when you watch a Mario Kart event. I doubt there's very much money involved for the winners. It's all about pride and um, skill for them uh, and just sharing it on this forum that not many people, you know, relative to other sports, visit so it's all about the pride and i feel a lot's taken away when you lose that that sporting behavior so um yeah Yeah. i'm with you on that the result is that dan is the champion and mateus i noticed announced his retirement just a few days ago from the scene over on the forums Mm -hmm. question is is winning at all costs worth it you know what to do let us know your thoughts on the this week in retro subreddit and we'd be very interested to hear them neil Can anything beat the feeling of finding an old, unloved computer kicked to the curb, Uh, especially when it has that familiar C logo on it? 
Uh, I remember when the A1000 that sat right behind me was rescued from a life of dust and debris in my uncle's basement and was delivered to my place three years ago this Thanksgiving. Now, we all know that even though a good scrub down and retro brighting can fix the externals of a machine, time and harsh storage conditions are sometimes unkind to our classic systems. And that's where our friends at Retro Rewind step in. If you don't have the tools or the steady hand necessary to perform repairs on broken ports, exploding capacitors, or solder reflows, they're willing and able to help with all that and more. If you've got an old machine that's in a bad way, just log in to RetroRewind.ca, click on Repairs from the Account menu, and you can list whatever issues you have and submit it for a quote. It's that easy. And that's not all. If you use the promo code TWIR10 at checkout, that's one zero for the 10, you can save 10% off your repair or any other purchases. We thank and appreciate Retro Rewind for sponsoring this week's episode. Neil, we've covered what seems like three or 400 mini consoles on this show. And finally, we have the one we've been waiting for. Yes, it's the Mini Vectrex, John. Is that what's arrived? <laughs> Dang it. Now I want a Mini Vectrex, Neil. <laughs> Unfortunately, we're still waiting on tiny vector monitors to go into production. But in the meantime, our favorite 16-bit computer is finally coming home in a shrunken down size. Ah, uh, yes. The, uh, I want to say Acorn Archimedes, but I think that was 32-bit. <laughs> <laughs> Neil, so, uh, you're yeah, just trying to mess I... with our fine listeners at this point. <laughs> you know if a mini Archimedes was announced, I'd already be camped out in front of their production facility waiting for the first model to roll <laughs> off the line. But no, it's it's not a mini Archie. Neil, at long last, after literally years of speculation and rumor, the mini Amiga has uh, officially of been course. announced. Of course, yes. This came hot, hot off the press during last week's show. So uh, yeah, it's good that we've got a chance to dig into it this week. Yeah, yeah. The company behind the C64 Mini, uh, Retro Games, has just announced the A500 Mini. And that's the name of it. The the the, uh, the, the is part of the name. The <laughs> A500 Mini. Uh, and I've got to say, it, it is what it sounds like. Uh, picture an Amiga 500 shrunk down to handheld size, and, and that's what you get. But as we know well from these mini consoles, it's no great feat to create a piece of plastic resembling a classic piece of hardware. Uh, the software under the hood is what can make or break the usability of this thing. And uh, from what I've seen, Neil, I'm, I'm very impressed. Well, you say that, people will quite willingly collect pieces of plastic that looks like old computers, regardless of what they've got inside them, <laughs> just, just as ornaments. And, you know, that's part, you of, may the, not be wrong. Yeah. part of the appeal of this whole thing. But, um, yeah, you're very impressed. I'm going to be a little bit more reserved about it personally. Uh, but I'm also going to acknowledge that I don't think that you and I are perhaps really its target market. I know just as well as you do that I can get Raspberry Pi, um, which is ARM-based like this. I, I'm pretty sure this is an ARM-based system. Um, I think it's Orange Pi-based inside this. I mm. think that's what I've read. I can put AmiBerry or, or any number of other uh, Amiga configurations onto the Raspberry Pi with an SD card. I can source the Kickstart ROMs. I can download the ADS. I can set up a hard disk with WHD load games on it. I can get that full ex Amiga experience in a tiny package. And so will a lot of our listeners. They'll know how to do this. And it's not for us. This is for people who don't want to jump through those hoops, perhaps haven't even thought about the Amiga for decades. And they're reminded when they see this thing on Amazon, on the high street, like they did with 
the V64, also with V in the, in the title, um, launched by the same company. And they'll make an impulse decision and they'll take it home. They'll have some fun with it and there's nothing wrong with that at all. Uh, I think the C64 appeared in a high street store called Argos, which is a pretty big store in the UK on the high street. You know, real mainstream stuff. You don't have to go to some mm. obscure website to find this thing. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's not something that's breaking new ground for the more involved retro gamer like you and I. It looks like for your money you get yourself 25 licensed games and despite being housed in an Amiga 500 case or A500 as it says on the case because you won't actually see the name Amiga anywhere on this thing clearly they haven't got the rights to use the Amiga name but boy if you know anything about the Amiga world and the wranglings about its ownership and copyright and trademarks and all of this you'll, you'll be impressed that they even got this far with this thing to get it out there so fair play to them for that. Despite being an A500, it can be configured to run as an AGA machine, an A1200, an A4000, whatever you want. So in theory, you should be able to run absolutely anything on this thing. Um, what games? I know there's 25. Do you know what games we get with this, John? Well, they've officially confirmed about half of them. Right. And um, and I, I think they, they kind of represent, the, the ones they've announced so far, do a pretty good job representing the uh, the best of the Amiga library. You've got uh, Another World, Battle Chess, The Chaos Engine, Speedball 2, Simon the Sorcerer, and Worms. It's a, it's a pretty impressive list of titles. And uh, according to Retro Games, of course, there's, there's more to come in the future, uh, that full 25. But here's the most exciting thing, at least to me. Uh, you've got multi-slot save and resume features, which is common with these mini consoles, but I'm, I'm glad to see it. Uh, and the ability to sideload your own games over USB, and not just ADFs. Uh, this machine actually has WHD load support, and if you're not familiar with the Amiga scene, uh, this is what makes a lot of Amiga games uh, more fun to play because it takes multi-disc games and creates a virtual hard drive uh, that, that, that basically runs multi-disc games as one continuous game. It speeds up load times, uh, it adds, uh, and, some, and sometimes it adds trainer features, lots of different things. Uh, WHD load is really a godsend to your Amiga emulation enthusiast, so when I heard that, uh, I about fell out of my chair because I never expected this this console to have WHD load support. That's that's a huge game changer for me. I think it's really important that it's got that because it packages up a game in such a way that it, it almost consolizes it. It makes it as a right. just one click run. You know it's going to run. It's going to run as fast as it can in terms of loading speeds. You're not waiting for those virtual floppy disk loading speeds. Um, so yeah it's important that it's got that uh, i'm still i am certainly seeing a lot more excitement from you than, than from me john just call me an old <laughs> cynic but let me tell you something there's something that i'm really really interested in in this package it's a mini so of course there's no working keyboard on the case um but you well you have to plug in a usb keyboard to, to use a keyboard that would be important but it does come with a full-size usb amiga tank mouse in that distinctive mm -hmm. tank style now, if you put that on sale on its own, I'll buy 10 of those straight off the bat. I absolutely love that there's a USB tank mouse out there now. Um, they've also made a CD32 style joypad, which ships with it. And it's nice that it's included. I'm very much a joystick gamer when it comes to the Amiga, so I'm not as excited about that. But, you know, nice. It, it's not one-to-one -one with the CD32 joypad style. A lot of people um, don't like that joypad. So, you know, it's a bit more ergonomic. But it gives you all of the CD32 buttons so you can play those games 
um even though a lot of most amiga games are one button affairs some do support two buttons and then you've got the cd32 one so it's nice that let's say everything is catered for you in theory you should be able to run absolutely anything uh with the amiga name on it here the big question for me is will they do with this what they did with the 64 and follow it up with a maxi full-sized recreation of the a500 um with a working keyboard the c64 one was pretty nice when they did that i'd like to see that my instincts tell me that the potential casual amiga retro gamer audience is smaller than the c64 audience which sold in huge numbers this is c64 mm-hmm. was like the biggest selling micro of all time so will yeah, we see I think, the same... i think the the total worldwide sales of the amiga were something like seven million units which is is not a large number in terms of you know console or computer sales so yeah yeah i don't know what the c64 numbers were but it was certainly a lot larger i i, I think over 40 million yeah so. and then you go into the nes and the mega drive and things mm-hmm. like that and it's just huge huge numbers so in right. that context the amiga is a smaller market the the retro uh, the, the people who are nostalgic for the amiga even smaller again and if the mini doesn't succeed commercially will we see a maxi follow it i'm not sure the c64 maxi was effectively the mini it was exactly the same board just in a larger in a maxi case so if they've been smart mm-hmm. they'll have made the mini board so that it can just be you know they can just use the excess stock if they want to transplant into sure. a maxi case at a later date so I, I'm, I'm on the fence i don't know if we'll ever see a maxi i hope people buy the mini so that we do see the maxi so, so don't be put off too much by my cynicism <laughs> well they they have done a q a uh since we we first heard about the story and they have uh confirmed that their plan is to do a maxi after they sell the mini right. okay but uh what was surprising was that they you know, they revealed some figures about the c64 project that they did and they said that the mini units sold massively better than the maxi units even though the maxi units were not priced much more than the mini units um but i think that it it just comes down to uh, people buying this, as you said, as sort of a desk ornament, uh, something that they can uh, easily plug into their TV and it not take up too much space on their their media, uh, mm-hmm. you know, shelf or whatever. So um, you there are definitely people. Though, you have mm-hmm. to remember the Maxi came a year after the Mini, so people had already bought the Mini. So had that That's killed true. the potential market for the Maxi? And at, at, at that point, like, yeah, at that point, there was no pattern. Uh, retro games hadn't necessarily come out and said, we're going to make a Maxi in a year. People didn't know if that was actually going to happen or not. Mm-hmm. And I know that I was personally, uh, I didn't think that that was going to happen. I was like, there's no way they'll spend the money to make something with a fully working keyboard. Of course, I was wrong. I was glad to be proved <laughs> wrong. But in this case, uh, announcing it at the same time as the Mini, I do wonder if that's going to put some people off buying the Mini version and wait for that that bigger version. Yeah. But is it Catch-22? If they don't see the Mini sales, will they commit to the right. Maxi? We're going to have to yeah. wait and see how this pans out. Yeah. So, but anyway, getting back to your your talking points, you're not wrong. Um, if you have an Amiga, or if you have a Mister, or even a Pi, you're not really the target market here. But uh, surely, Neil, surely you've got to be excited about the prospect of new Amigas, and yes, I say that in quotes, uh, being opened in homes around the country next year, right? Throw me a bone here, Neil. Yeah. Yeah. Just having the name out there, uh, reinvigorating some excitement for the Amiga from people who have not thought about it for decades uh it's all good it's all good and 
you know, undoubtedly this will be the gateway drug for some people who will start on this and then they'll filter into the forums and the Discord chats and the community will get ever, ever bigger and it's all good. So, yeah, uh, there's your bone. <laughs> Thrown. <laughs> uh, the A500 Mini will ship in early 2022 for 119 pounds, 129 euros, or 139 dollars. Uh, if you plan on picking one up, please do let us know in the comments. So, a quickie for Story 3 this week then, John. A name familiar to the show is Graham Cowie. He of Bombjack, Rygar, and Super Sprint conversions for the Amiga, Super Sprint being the, uh, the most recent one. And he's at it again, this time with arcade classic Kung Fu Remaster. Not Kung Fu Master in this case. It's a departure from his previous ports in which Graham has made faithful recreations of arcade classics because this time he's enhancing the original with new graphics if not more, he's got license to do whatever the hell he wants with it. <laughs> Kung Fu Master, I don't think, I might, I'm, I'm ready to be corrected, but I don't think it ever got an Amiga port originally. We're talk- I don't think so either, because I'm sure I would have played it by this point. Yeah, we're talking about a 1984 arcade game, so it would have been considered old hat by the time the Amiga was being gamed on in any numbers. And um, we've not got that snobbery in, in modern day retro gaming you know a classic is a classic but back then you would have turned your nose up at a 1984 game in in 1989 as being old i can't tell you how many magazines uh reviews i've read in amiga format or amiga power where the game is great but they they give it a poor score just because in in their words you know old games are old so it's it was a different world back then (laughs) it was it was the game is set to run on a stock Amiga 500 with a half meg expansion. So you don't need any accelerators, just a little bit of extra RAM. If you haven't got that in your trapdoor port in your, in your Amiga, what are you even doing? Everyone has a half meg <laughs> RAM expansion. Yeah, yeah. what are we doing here? Or, of course, you could run it on your A500 uh, Mini, no doubt, because Graham always releases these. Um, he, he usually does a limited run of big box releases, but he also releases the ADFs and, and WHD load and all the rest of it. So... You know, maybe this is the killer app that will sell a million A500 minis, John. You never know. You never know. But I'm going to be honest with you. Um, Kung Fu Master is one of my favorite arcade games of all time. Uh, Is it mindless? Yes. (laughs) Are the sound effects repetitive and annoying? Oh, yeah. But... The action is so fast. It's so satisfying to drop enemies. And I say that uh, literally because they literally fall from the screen when you, <laughs> when you hit them. Uh, you know, you're, you're, you're taking out enemies left and right with your kicks and your punches. The bosses are all memorable. They're all fun. I love this game. Yeah, I can't think of many other games when you hit your enemies and they just fall straight out the bottom of the screen through the floor. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the, the art style on this recreation by Je- uh, Graham, it works really well. Um, the art is by an artist called Ten Shu. Uh, Graham's on the code, and Martin Erickson is doing audio duties on this game. Mm. And if you look at some screenshots of it not in motion, you might think the sprites are a, an homage to the game Renegade. Um, that's the first thing I thought of anyway when I looked at the screenshots. Um, but if you watch it in motion, it flows really, really nicely. You can really chain together the punches, the kicks, and the, and the jumps, and the flying kicks. It's got this really lovely flow to the animation in this game. So it's off to a really fantastic start. And that's so important in Kung Fu Master. Um, I know you say the sounds were repetitive and annoying, but that um, that kind of Bruce Lee shout when he kicks mm-hmm. or punches, 
it worked so well it was such a good bit of feedback every time you hit that punch button um, oh yeah and it was a game that was all about timing and and connecting perfectly with the enemy you might have four or five enemies coming at you at once and you had to time every button press and every bruce lee shout perfectly so to see the animation flowing in such a nice way on these early demos um i've got no doubt that graham's going to do an awesome job on this it's, it's looking really good one thing that I think we should we should definitely mention is uh, the enemies really have no offensive attacks in terms of as they rush up to you, uh, they don't they don't kick you or punch you. They give you the old hug of death, where <laughs> they just sort of attach to your body and your health drains away, <laughs> which I always enjoyed. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, um, yeah. You do you do have some flying uh, weapons like knives being. Yeah, you've got you. enemies will throw projectiles, they'll throw knives and boomerangs and things. But your garden variety enemy, he just wants love, Neil. <laughs> Just accept it. Um, when, you, when you think about when this game came out, I mean, this game came out in 1984. Uh, there was nothing else that I can think of that looked this good and played this well in terms of this particular genre. I mean, this game pretty much invented this genre as, as far as I'm aware of. Uh, of course, it came out of Japan. Um, you mentioned Renegade. Renegade actually came out a full two years after this, which in 1980s arcade development is like decades away. I mean, if you look at the progress between 82 and 84, and then 84 and 86, uh, it, we, we came a long way in a very short amount of time in terms of uh, what, what was on offer in the arcades. But uh, you asked before, is this version of Kung Fu Master a killer app? Uh, probably not. But it's definitely a worthy addition to the Amiga library, and it does much to atone for some of the horrible arcade ports the Amiga did receive in its heyday. It does. It does. That um, that combination of not being pressurized by a studio to get this out, uh, to produce the game in, in a limited time period, and all of the experience and tips and tricks gained over decades of Amiga development. It's so nice to see these classics come out, which are, they're not, pretending or trying to bring anything new to the machine or to gaming they're just saying look this is the absolute best version we can make of this game on this platform and this platform can do it justice and then some and graham's so good at doing that so yeah i, I agree it, it ain't going to be the killer app but it's going to be a really nice version of the game so you can check this out and other games by graham at mukgeezer.itch.io great web address or check the show notes for the link Neil, last week we talked about the remake of Zool, a franchise of games that didn't necessarily light the world on fire, but they are remembered fondly by some who didn't necessarily know about the wider world of platformers outside the computer scene. Uh, of course, Zool was probably included in quite a few demos for, or not demos, but um, packs, you know, the bundles, the Amiga bundles that were so hot in the UK. Um, when you play franchises like Mario, Sonic, and Mega Man, it does tend to make you wonder, what was it about these games that were so hard for European developers to emulate? What do you think, Neil? Hmm. Hard to say, really, John, because it's not like there was a lack of talented game developers um, in Europe, or certainly in, in the UK. I, I would say a uh, case in point would be Ultimate Play the Game, or Rare as they become. They could create magic on... Um, something as little as a ZX Spectrum with 16K of RAM. If you look at a game like Jetpack, they could do wonderful things. But on consoles, that would come a lot later, certainly for Rare. And um, I think it's in part down to Sega and Nintendo's 
holding their cards very close to their chest with the dev kits. I think that plays mm. a big part of it. Now, the mm. NES, remember, came out in 1983, and Nintendo thought quite rightly that the only way to re- avoid a repeat of the, the great North American video game crash that affected Atari so much was to have really strict quality control on games. And this meant things like getting dev kits outside of Japan was basically nigh on impossible there were stringent quality controls and checks and, and they wanted to look over your shoulder at absolutely everything that you were doing so it was a lot easier to write video games for a home computer where you could just put something on a cassette tape and start selling it than it was in in the console ecosystem mm-hmm. companies like um software creations here in the uk when i spoke to them on a tea break not so long ago uh, they explained how they had to reverse engineer the NES and create their own it was a Commodore 64-based dev kit. So we did have talent there, and there are some examples. It's perhaps not up there with the greatest, and it comes a little bit later than the original Mario's and things like that. But I know one of your favourite games, John, of all time, is The Adams Family. And that was a fun platformer developed by Ocean Software here in the UK. So. Yeah, that one, is, that, one, that one is really the exception that proves the rule, because not only was it a uk uh developed platformer that i believe was 100 percent console quality but it also was a licensed title which is usually a mark yeah. of death and it was developed by ocean which also put out some real stinkers so uh it shows that even a blind squirrel finds it <laughs> i'll be that blind squirrel today so yeah i think the talent was there but you're right nintendo or sega always seem to have that extra bit of polish on their flagship games Perhaps that was aided by the intricate knowledge of the systems that they held close to their chest in the early days, at least. Um, Of course, you could reverse the argument for other genres, European developers doing those better than Japanese developers. But platformers, I agree, they absolutely had them mastered. Yeah, yeah. And I I agree with all of that. Um, And I think it also comes down to just industry experience, programming experience. Uh, The majority of programmers in Europe were kids uh barely out of their out of their teens many of them were still in their teens and programmers in japan uh, had years or even close to decades of experience programming games uh, starting with arcade games in their nascent days and going through several iterations of evolution on the famicom or the sg1000 before reaching what many consider to be the platformers golden age in the 16-bit era um Nothing, in my opinion, teaches like experience. And when you combine that with uh, a steady paycheck, that's something that I think gets forgotten a lot, too. Uh, the the developers of these games were working at real corporations. They were getting a salary, uh, a real salary uh, and benefits and things like that. And rather than, you know, you had people in the UK and also in the US uh, programming in their bedrooms for an advance that might or might not be enough to buy a car and then getting stiffed out of future payments by your publisher is what happened on so many games that we cover on on Amigos. Yeah, you make a good point. Um, I would use the Oliver Twins as an example, a couple of bedroom coders here in the UK who published through Codemasters, and um, they weren't on a paycheck. They were on a a royalty Mm -hmm. basis. And they took pride in the number of games that they could release in a year. You know, we can get a game out every eight weeks or 12 weeks. It was the churn. Uh, And that's not to say they made Mm -hmm. bad games, but if they'd spent two years making a game i've no doubt it would be you know super high super high quality i still have nightmares about advanced ski simulator now (laughs) i think it's actually advanced professional ski simulator (laughs) 
Yeah, you got to put simulator and professional on the title if it's a Codemasters game. <laughs> yeah. And if we step out of Europe and go to America, kind of the same applies there because, you know, we had Atari's presence um, not just in the arcades, but also in home video consoles, uh, video game consoles in the, in the mid-70s. So experienced programmers who would have worked on that were there and you had companies like Activision who made up some of the most talented game programmers around. Um, so, you know it's a really complex argument i don't think it's europe versus japan when you bring the american experience into play as well of those older systems oh yeah i mean i i don't consider i don't consider america to be a factor at all in this point <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> i think <clears throat> after the uh after the video game crash in 1984 i i consider american game development to be pretty stagnant for the you know the for a while uh and a lot of the innovation if we're being honest was coming out of either europe or japan um Maybe it's just because of my console-centric way of looking at things, and the the innovation on on the American side was coming out of the PC market. But uh, when it comes to especially the the platformer argument, uh, you definitely have European style platformers that have you know indications that this is where it originated. There are little uh, ticks that that tell you that this definitely came out of Europe. Same with Japan. There's really no such thing as an American style platformer. Mm-hmm. So um this is all this is all chat leading up to a new platform game isn't it John that's come out That's right that's right I'm glad to report that we're seeing some progress in the much beleaguered world of Amiga platformers as uh today's independent developers not beholden to deadlines or other publisher demands are cranking out some really top-notch software uh case in point a game that I just found out about that is getting ready to launch this winter uh, Super Delivery Boy That's right Neil Following on the heels of such true-to-life exploits as Trash Man and Paperboy, Super Delivery Boy features a boy navigating the mean streets of New York City on his bicycle, making deliveries under the clock. I just made all that up, uh, though it does sound like a pretty good game idea. Uh, Super Delivery Boy is actually a straightforward platforming action game directly in the vein of Mario, Sonic, and if you're of that persuasion, uh, the Guiana Sisters. Uh, But unlike so many Amiga platformers of the past, this one features a boatload of fully voiced tunes and sound effects at the same time, Neil. Sound and effects at the same Awful time. Channels. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, the graphics are detailed pixel art representations. And most importantly, the controls feel just right. Uh, at the end of the day with platformers, controls are the end-all and be-all, and this game delivers. Uh, Neil, have you had a chance to look at the demo of Super Delivery Boy? I have, and it's funny. We laugh about Trash Man and Paperboy and all of these games, but actually a game based on delivering parcels is more relevant today than it ever was. You could That's call true. this game like not Amazon Prime, <laughs> the game, or something right. like that. Maybe, um, maybe they're going to put out you know a sponsored game like Burger King did with the Xbox 360 titles. You never know. Yeah. Lose points for taking a bathroom break. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That's it. <laughs> so, I, I'm seen... just seeing maybe a, a, a peeing in the bottle mini game. I don't know. I'm just throwing <laughs> things out there. <laughs> well, if nobody else makes it, you need to, John. Um, I've seen the demo of the game running out there. Um, the, the style of the graphics is very, very un-European. It, it's really nailing that Japanese platformer look. Um, when you first look at it, the first thing I thought of was Flappy Bird. Um, mm. You know, it, it's that look where it's not trying in the slightest to hide or blend the pixels. It's it's pixely and it's proud that it's pixely yes. in, its, in its design. So you've got that pixely style. 
You've got a gameplay that looks like it moves a lot like Super Mario with a sprinkle of kind of Taito games um, like New Zealand Story is in there. Mm -hmm. I got that kind of vibe from it. Um, So, yeah, overall, I I do like the look of this game. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, The current version is slated to be the last demo version until the full game is launched this winter. So if you're interested in getting a new platformer for your Amiga that plays beautifully, uh, you can pick it up right now at nisogames.itch.io and of course we'll put that link in the show notes Uh, it'll run on any amiga from a 1 meg 500 all the way up to a 4000 and uh but as is with many of these scorpion engine games that's the development tool that's used to create them the better your machine the better it'll run Uh, i tried it out through emulation on fsuae uh, with an a1200 i didn't have any problems at all so i imagine that the majority of our amiga owning listeners won't have trouble running this thing and uh, Mario and Sonic, uh, it's time to move over. Super Delivery Boy is on its way. It's kind of funny, John. We've just talked about two new Amiga games and an Amiga Mini, so a new Amiga platform coming for people to play them on. What a bizarre state of affairs in 2021 to be talking about all of this Amiga stuff. I know, I know. It is, it is truly uh, the halcyon days of being an Amiga enthusiast or what we're living right now. All right, Neil, it's time for our community question of the week. Last week's community question of the week was, what would it take you to buy a Commodore smartphone? So we head over to our subreddit, and subreddit user headersd leads things off with, having watched the video on this subject by Mr. Nostalgia Nerd, I'm afraid the answer is hell freezing over. <laughs> Why am I not surprised? That is the top answer, and, and it is the correct answer. <laughs> yeah. Now, there were some other takes. Uh, Do Communication 855 says, I think I'm with Neil on this one. Maybe a retro style Commodore phone case that looks like an old school 80s, that looks like old school 80s tech might make me part with some cash. Apart from that, what's the point? Smartphones are relatively cheap and do a good job even in basic form. A A full Commodore phone wouldn't add anything useful functionally, I don't think. It's probably no, true. I mean, these clone Android phones, are, uh, they're all pretty much the same. You know, the more you pay, the faster the CPU you get, the snappier it is. But ultimately, they're the same. So, um, yeah. yeah, it's just a logo. Yeah. Um, and Pajaco6502 says he wants a real QWERTY or similar keyboard. He says, I owned a Motorola Milestone, a.k.a. Droid, back in the day, and I loved it, second only to my Xperia Play which is the PlayStation phone. I hate typing or writing in touchscreen. And so a real keyboard would pretty much seal the deal. Plus, it would be brilliant for retro gaming, too, and be two to 300 pounds. Were you a big fan of the, uh, the physical keyboard on your smartphones, Neil? I was. Um, I had a BlackBerry for quite some time for work, which had those physical uh, keyboards and also the rollerball. A tiny, tiny rollerball. Did you ever use a BlackBerry with a rollerball? And they... I've never used a BlackBerry before in my life, Neil. Oh, be okay, so a tiny, tiny rollerball. And when you're supporting them, they were always the first thing to break those rollerballs. They'd oh. get gunked up. Is this and... sort of like the nub on a ThinkPad uh, keyboard where it was just a tiny thing that was embedded in the keyboard somewhere? It, w- it was that small, but it was an actual ball that ro- rolled. Oh, wow. <clears throat> like okay. a little... Um, little ball bearing that you'd roll i can see that Um, being a nightmare especially if dust got in there or anything like that yeah but when phones were that size i was a real champion of physical keyboards i didn't like Mm -hmm. on-screen keyboards 
But you look at the size of smartphones these days, they're so big that the on-screen keyboard is that much easier to use just because it's that much bigger. So um, right. I'm less uh, persnickety about that kind of thing now. Um, but give me a decent tactile physical keyboard on a phone and I'll still quite happily use it, yes. Yeah, yeah. So thank you all so much for those those answers. We really appreciate it. And uh, it's time, Neil, to announce this week's community question of the week. What do you think of the A500 Mini? I'm expecting I'm expecting a flood, Neil. I'm not going to lie to you. There are people out there on the internet, and those people have opinions. Yeah, so. and I think I think um, uh, what I forgot to mention earlier is the company behind this. They have had some kind of run-ins with the community in the past, um, mm. with YouTubers and with Twitterers and with things like that. Um, on the scale of things, that isn't going to bother them one little bit because they're aiming for this mainstream uh, market. But um, just to prepare ourselves, I wouldn't be surprised if we get a few uh, comments along those lines um, in the forums. And that's fine. That's part and parcel of this company's history and uh, another thing that's quite interesting to discuss. But worth noting. Yeah, yeah. So please post your responses in the subreddit, and we'll read the top three most upvoted responses on the air next week. This Week in Retro was presented by Neil from RMC and John Shawler. It was produced by me, Duncan Stiles. The podcast version of the show is available through your favorite podcaster, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And the video version is available on the This Week in Retro YouTube channel. Join our community subreddit at r slash thisweekinretro to suggest and vote on stories we cover on the show. If you watch This Week in Retro on YouTube, please give us a like and subscribe to help us reach new viewers. If you'd like to support the show, please check out the links to our Patreon and Coffee pages in the show notes or in the YouTube description. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.